0: Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallowson Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions, or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. Hi, everyone. I hope you are doing well on this Labor Day weekend. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are. We are always thankful for your support and desire to stay connected to the teachings that are coming out of the table. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor of Teaching and Discipleship for the Table Community Church here in the Gallatin Valley. And again, thank you for tuning in. Now, for today... We are going to be closing out the parables series that we have been in for the last couple of weeks with a text that is not necessarily a parable, but does serve as a conclusion to the parables. As we look into the text, you see that Jesus uses this passage to wrap up his parables teaching. And so we're going to do the same. You know, and since we've spent the last month trying to get our minds around the stories that Jesus has told us that seem to disrupt us and then redirect us, we now ask the question as we close this series, what do I do with it all? We've talked about the kingdom of God. We've talked about parables, and parables are not meant to be necessarily instructive as much as they are inspirational. They're to inspire our imagination about what life is like in the kingdom, and then move us to live life in the kingdom of God, which is life under the rule and reign of Jesus, which promises a life of wholeness, contentment, peace, joy, even in the face of difficulty. And so what do we do with all that? What does it look like to actually apply that? And so, you know, we've looked at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and we concluded that life in the kingdom is about recognizing that the power in the kingdom is not like power in our world. God is playing the long game of redemption, not the short game of force and coercion and manipulation. So often the way we see power used is in those ways in our world, and that's not God's way. God's playing the long game. And the kingdom— As we saw, it was more like a mustard seed than it is a military tank in the way that it is about process and growth and transformation. And so this led us to think about how we view power and transformation in our lives and in the world. And so what do we do with that? You know, then we looked at the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, and there we concluded that the kingdom of God is like stumbling upon the most precious object, or it's like being on such an intense search for the thing that will make us most joyful and then finding it. You know, we we must dig past the surface, and then we must look closely, because the kingdom could be right underneath our feet or right around the corner, and it's worth giving everything up for. And so what do we do with that? And then we looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector, and then we determined that we all have a little bit of Pharisaical spirit within us, and in order to live in the kingdom, we have to practice repentance and graciousness and then be worried more about our own sin than the sins of others. And so what do we do with that? And last week, we looked at the parable of the unjust judge and the widow, and we learned that it's in that space of prayer where we find the heart of God and we, were, well, we are in tune with God, and God surely hears us, and he will surely give us what we need when we need it. Our role is to be faithful to him, which is ultimately expressed through developing a deep prayer life. In that parable, we learned that the expression of faithfulness according to Jesus that he's looking for is ongoing, committed, deep, persistent prayer. And so what do we do with it? Well, the answer is simple, but not easy, as such is the parables and teachings around the parables. According to Jesus, as you'll find out in the text we're reading, we simply receive it, but we don't know really what that means fully. And it may mean something different than what we think. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke eighteen, fifteen through 17. Luke eighteen, fifteen through 17. Okay, it says... People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom like this little child will never enter it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we navigate this text, coming off the heels of this of these parables, would you continue to inspire our imagination and what life looks like as we follow you? God, make us more like Jesus as we immerse ourselves in your word. God, we give thanks for all you're doing in and through the table. We give thanks for your provision, your guidance in our church, in our community, in our own personal lives. By the power of your spirit, make us more like your son Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So again, to close out this teaching on parables, Jesus says, well, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look like children. You're supposed to be like them, and if you don't become like them, then you are in danger of not entering the kingdom. So we have a lot at stake here by understanding what this means to become like children. I mean, think about that. Apparently, we need to look closely at children and watch their ways or else we might be missing one of the most important things in life. And so in order to better understand this, we've got, we're going to look at the text in four movements. And I'm going to try and be as brief as I can, but I also want to do the text justice. The four things, we're going to look at who Jesus receives, how we receive, who we are, and how we practice receiving. And so, if you didn't catch those, no worries. We're just going to hit those one by one. So, the first thing, let's get into this. Let's talk about those whom Jesus receives. So, in this text, we have many surrounding Jesus and listening to his teachings and following him wherever he goes. He's being bombarded with crowds. Now, all of a sudden, we have babies being brought to Jesus. Now, the disciples see this, and they strongly rebuked them. Jesus, however, does something interesting. He uses this as a teaching moment, as an illustration about how the kingdom of God works and who is actually in and out of the kingdom. Now, other passages we find in the other Gospels tell us the same text, that Jesus was actually angry and indignant and rebuked the disciples for rebuking the children. Jesus says, no, no, you are rebuking them, but you actually have to become like them. You actually have to become like such as these We need to understand that this would have been just as shocking and controversial as any parable or teaching of Jesus that we've come across. Yet we think this is a nice, warm, and sweet text about children. So, what's happening here? Let's put some context to this passage so we better understand it. You see, children in Jesus' day were not highly regarded, and they were put into the class of a so, of being socially inconvenient, until they became old enough to be productive towards family life and society. One scholar, James Edwards, he puts it just succinctly and better than I could. He simply says, "...the modern West generally regards the qualities of childlikeness, such as innocence, truthfulness, and humility, as inherently praiseworthy, and hence tenderness to children as virtuous." The ancient world did not regard children likewise. In Judaism, women and children derived their position in society primarily in relationship to adult males. Sons were, of course, regarded as a blessing from God, but largely because they ensured the continuance of their family for another generation. In general, he says, childhood was an unavoidable and uncelebrated interim until the young were mature enough to bear children and to contribute to the workforce. One will search ancient literature in vain, for sympathy towards young, comparable to what's been shown to them by Jesus. Think about that. What this scholar is saying is, you will look as far as you can, as wide as you can, for someone treating children like Jesus treated them, and you will not find them. It doesn't exist. The way Jesus treated children and inspired his believers to treat children is utterly unique. And so here, where the children are coming to Jesus, they're being rebuked, Now, we don't know why, but perhaps it's for the same reasons why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus associating with tax collectors, sinners, sexually immoral people, or Gentiles. They simply didn't belong in the circles of the rabbis. Now, the disciples may have thought, well, they don't belong here, or maybe their playfulness and crying was perhaps too much of a distraction or an inconvenience for Jesus. But again, Jesus has a different vision for these children than any other one in his culture do, than anyone else in his culture, excuse me. He seeks to bless them as they are for who they are and not for who they will become or may not become. They are, because of their status, blessed. This text says that Jesus would place his hands on them, and this was typically an act of blessing that was reserved for priests and passing on the name and land or an inheritance or something done for someone who was taking on an important office in the life of Israel or God's people, especially as seen in the Old Testament. But Jesus says to the children, you are blessed as you are. He's leveling the social playing field, bringing kids on the same level as adults with value and dignity. Think about that. The idea of blessing is to convey a sense of completion and flourishing within life. Blessing is is about being at a place within ourselves of where we experience joy and freedom. Even when things are not always good, we know that God is. There's a contentment there. And blessing is not being defined by our situations or limitations or resources, but finding life beyond those things. And so children here are blessed by Jesus. We also don't know why exactly the children are being brought to Jesus. We are assuming that he's trying to bless them because that's what the other Gospels tell us. But this text in particular doesn't say he's out to bless them, just simply to lay his hands on them. So perhaps what's happening is that parents are bringing their children who are ill as to Jesus to be healed because Luke places a strong emphasis on healing too. So to be a child and then be disabled or an ill child in this culture would have been a, a, a doubly socially problematic life for these kids. This would have been a social and even at times physical decenance from the society at large for children to be ill. And so whether Jesus is blessing them, telling them they're blessed, which we know they are because this happens in the other Gospels, or whether people are bringing them to Jesus for healing, the truth remains. Jesus elevates children. And so when we ask the question, who does Jesus receive? He receives the children, and it says, such as these. Now this phrase, such as these, refers to anyone whose status and culture is like that of a child. Those who we might deem socially unacceptable, not really useful to society, or downright dismiss them based on their life situation, their life stage, their circumstances, their race, whatever. Perhaps it's that homeless man. Whom we refuse to even give the dignity of a human look or wave, or taking the time to simply stop and hear their story. You know, I have a friend who does a great deal of work with homelessness, and he says consistently when he is ministering to the homeless, the homeless folks say that one of the hardest parts about being in their situation is that they feel invisible. They feel invisible. he tells me that sometimes a conversation carries them further than throwing coins into a bucket. That's what Jesus means when such as these. It's the person who maybe has wandered into church who might look unfamiliar, whose clothes don't look as nice as yours, and who we might say, yes, all are welcome, but in reality we have no intention of receiving them. That's such as these. Jesus says we must now become like them. Now, he's not saying give up everything, become homeless. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's something about them that we need to recover in our own spiritual lives. We need to become like them, but now the question is how? And so let's let's secondly talk about how we receive. And when I say, when I say this, I'm saying, what must we do to receive the kingdom of God like a child and such as these? You see when we approach this story with modern eyes we're going to really run into a lot of problems when jesus tells us to become like children our minds naturally gravitate towards the virtuous nature of children perhaps their honesty their innocence their forgiving nature their trusting spirit and whatever just the list goes on because we value children and these are wonderful virtues and we should seek to reflect them i think they're important you know we should become more honest like kids i mean kids are honest to a fault i remember a couple of years ago i was leading worship for this children's ministry And they were about, I think they were like first, second, third graders maybe. And I walked in with my guitar. I open up my guitar. I start playing. And I step into the mic. And I go, hey, kids, are you guys ready to worship Jesus? And I was all amped up and excited. And they all look at me and go, no, no, this is boring. They were so honest. I was like, okay, you little jerks, we'll stand up. We're going to worship God anyways, you know. But no, they, they were just so honest. We should become like that. So the virtues are not bad, but that's not how the original audience would have viewed this story. As we mentioned, children were viewed as a social nuisance until they can contribute to society or the family during this day and time. Now, in our culture, we actually have a higher view of children, and this is even increasingly true. Christians have always prioritized, for example, the sanctity of life. And at the table, we talk about sanctity of life, being about celebrating, protecting, and giving dignity to all human life from womb to tomb. It's not just about the abortion issue. It's it's a way of seeing people in general. So we see inherent value in human life, and more and more people are seeing the same value. You know, for example, younger generations today that are coming up are way more pro-life than the older generations, even though these younger generations are less religious. People are starting up secular, non-faith-based organizations that are promoting sanctity of life. People are looking and going, yes, this is obviously a life. We, we need to we need to protect it. We need to give voice to it. And so beyond this, there's a global campaign right now to save children from sex trafficking. And many of those who are involved in seeking justice for minorities and peacefully protesting or writing their legislators to put changes into place in their cult in their particular context. They're all doing this in a lot of ways, many of them are doing this to protect and promote life, especially the lives and futures of the young. You listen to both political platforms right now. One of the things that you'll hear common during election seasons is what about the future generations? You see, we value youth in a way that the original audience didn't really have a concept of. Now, just to drive this point home, one historian says, in the Greco-Roman world, Children in general were viewed as lowly and without social status. Unwanted infants were sometimes literally thrown away. Others were raised as prostitutes or as gladiators. Some were even intentionally disfigured to enhance their value as beggars. In other words, there would not be any of these campaigns to save the discarded and disabled children. And the only ones who did were the earliest followers of Jesus, based on the dignity that he showed to children— Jesus elevated children and his followers followed suit. But this is their first teaching. They started off by messing this thing up royally. And so we should not read into this text that we need to look at the virtues of children as if that were the point. Because again, the original audience would not have read that. They'd be looking at children going, what, you want us to become a social nuisance? You want us to be kind of come irrelevant? What, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so a glaring problem exists if we think about becoming virtuous as the point of what Jesus is getting at when he says, look, at you must become like children. Glaring problem. You see, the gospel is about grace, not moral virtue. If we read this story as an instruction to become more moral like children, we are saying that we must become good enough or we won't enter the kingdom. It puts being morality as the requirement for entering into the kingdom, which is not the gospel. The parable just before this text teaches this exact same concept that we're on about, about grace and mercy. The Pharisee, you see, had all of the virtue in the world and then some, but he failed to enter the kingdom. While the tax collector had no virtue, but an awareness of his need to be made right, and he entered the kingdom. This cannot be about morality. Now, this is actually a common belief as you engage folks within our culture. There's this general belief that if I'm a good person, then wherever life leads after death, I'll be fine, so long as I'm good, so long as I have virtue. But the problem is this Who says we have to be virtuous or moral? Why do we feel this tug that we need to do what's right? And how do we ever know if we've actually ever done enough? Because do our thoughts count? If we have immoral thoughts, does that count as immorality, or is it just amoral, just to think? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, is it—I mean, because surely, 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 we wouldn't say that morality is just about the things that we do. I mean, I think we could all agree that if we're sitting there thinking about killing someone night and day, that's immoral. So— Now we're not only dealing with actions, but our internal moral condition and state. I mean, again, is it amoral to think about hurting someone if you never actually follow through? No, no, we would say that's not a good thing. And we say it's not a good thing. We are making a moral claim. But not only that, we also hold others to a higher moral standard than we do ourselves. Thus, we don't actually believe in our own goodness no matter how hard we try. For example... We all know that at some point in time we've told a lie to someone or about someone at some point in time. We're all guilty of that. Yet, if we find out that someone is lying about us, we become irate. We want vengeance. We want to sit them down and have a talking to with them. You see, we are harsher with others than we are ourselves. Because we know deep down that we need grace. So we offer it to ourselves, but less of it to others. That's what happens when we buy this morality gospel. We'll live a life burdened by our behaviors, wondering if we've ever done enough. That's not the gospel. That's not what this text is about. And so it doesn't make historical or theological sense to make these passages about childlike virtue. So what then? What is it saying? Let's read one more passage, Matthew eighteen one through 5 and I think we'll find our answers as we bring these two texts together. It's the same text from a different angle in Matthew. It says in Matthew 18, 1-5, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Listen to that question. He called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. Think about that, among them, not beside them, not behind them, among them. Put them in their midst. Equal playing field. Verse 3. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus says something must change. We must become lowly and receptive. This word receptive means hospitality it means we're looking at God and going everything I have is yours you, you can come on in Jesus everything I have is yours it's what you do when you bring guests into your home help yourself to the cabinet have a seat on the couch grab yourself a drink whatever I have is yours that's the heart of hospitality we are to receive Jesus welcome him so basically we're saying all I have is yours and when we're lowly, this means we must surrender our desire for power and status and surrender in our weakness to receive Jesus. To receive the kingdom, we must acknowledge our lack of authority, ability, good morality, and lean on Jesus. Again, James Edwards, he says this, he says when he's referring to children, he says, they are important because of what they lack. They are small, powerless, without sophistication, overlooked, and dispossessed. Jesus thus emphasizes in the strongest possible way that the kingdom is offered to the helpless, the needy, the powerless, and the weak. And so, what he's saying is that the way we receive, how we receive, is recognizing our neediness and weakness and vulnerability and coming to God, knowing there's nothing we can bring to him, that we are completely dependent upon his grace. So the point of the story, the point of you must become like children, is becoming like those who have no and are not concerned with status. They know their weakness and they must depend on others. You see, there was this uh, there was a uh, researcher. he He brought together four large uh, federal universities, even one international university, University of Tokyo. I think it was University of California, Stanford, University of Tokyo. UCLA or another one. I can't really remember the names of the colleges, but four four important universities. He he what he does is he says, "Okay, we're going to put together teams of CEOs, lawyers, business students, and then we're going to have kindergartners come in too and all do the same project and see what happens." Now, the task was simple. You were to get you were given a handful of uh, uncooked spaghetti, a yard of tape, a yard of string, and a marshmallow. And the rule for the groups was this. The marshmallow must go on top. That's it. Their goal was to build the highest structure possible. And so when they said, ready, set, go, all of the business students, CEOs, and lawyers, they got to work. They started having conversations. They said, they figured, okay, well, what do we do here? How do we move this here? What if we move this here? They really began to work in cooperation. But Interestingly enough, the kindergartners didn't. They just started grabbing things, snatching things from each other, started putting things together. It would fall down. They would try it again. You know, but consistently, one of the things that happened was whereas the business students, for example, they consistently came in with building a structure out of that 10 inches tall, over and over. The highest one out of the group was the CEOs, and they built something 22 inches tall. But the kindergartners... The kindergartners, time and time again, defeated all of them, building these towers of spaghetti noodles at 26 inches, time and time again. And so, when they're wondering, like, okay, what's actually happening here? Why did these kindergartners, who looked like it was everything was chaos, doing so much better than these adults? Because what they were doing, what these adults were doing, according to psychologists, was trying to figure out who was actually in charge. They were doing status evaluation. Each one of them would ask a question that was trying to reveal, okay, who's actually in charge here? Is it okay to, is it okay to uh, disagree? Should I always agree? They were trying to work out their psychological status in the room, whereas the kindergartners, they didn't care about status, and they said that's what made the kindergartners so successful, was that there was a natural cooperation. They all saw each other as equal. They weren't concerned with status. Here's the interesting part kids express those virtues that we were just talking about because they are kids because precisely because they are kids they're not concerned with adult ways of life this means that when we realize who we are in Christ, we will see an overflow of virtue. We will become more patient, more kind, more loving, more forgiving, but only because we have realized that God has been that way towards us. And so virtue is a result of being in the kingdom of God, but it is not a requirement for entering into the kingdom of God, and that's quite scandalous. So when we realize who we are, we will find ourselves embodying these ideals naturally as we grow, but the point of the text is the status our status before God is nothing. We have to be brought to Him. We have to be brought to Him and figure out who we are in Him. And so, who are we? Well, simply put, we are God's children. And though we often reflect the disciples here more than we do the children, we are called to be children of God, and we, like the children in this passage, are being brought to Jesus by another. The text says that the babies were being brought to Jesus, presumably by their parents or by someone else, and that's exactly what the Spirit does for us. He brings us to Jesus on a daily basis. Listen to this passage in John 16, verses 13 through 15. He says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all of truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The point is that the Spirit will lead us to Jesus every single day, not just once. His role is to guide us to Jesus, to bring us to Jesus. That's the point. He will tug us towards prayer, towards the Word, towards church, and so on. We are brought to Jesus by the Spirit, and this makes us children. Just like these children are being brought to Jesus, we are being brought to Jesus in our lowly status when we recognize who we are. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 14-17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather so the Spirit you received brought about your adoption— To sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Did you hear the language of the children? That that language of children in this passage. So who, we, who are we? We are to literally be the children of God. So Jesus is saying, become like the children. God is saying, become my children. Not only that, this tells us that when we are children of God, we will look like Jesus. We will begin to reflect him. In particular here, weakness and suffering. That's the context of this passage in Romans 8. But this crosses over into other areas like patience, love, compassion. We will become more like Jesus as we are with Jesus. So again, the virtue comes when we become children of God. And we all know this. Children don't always obey, but they will always reflect. Always. You know, um, I'm recording this from my garage. You know, this is not our Sunday teaching. On Sunday, which was yesterday, I'm recording this um, Monday, yesterday at church, a a good illustration popped up. My son Cove was sitting in kind of the front off to the side, and when I talked about how children don't always obey but reflect, I happened to look up and I happened to see Cove wearing his hat backwards. And I told the church, I said, everyone just kind of look at Cove. He wasn't paying attention. He was reading a book. Everyone kind of look at Cove. What What is he doing? He's wearing his hat backwards. And if you guys know me at all, you know that the kind of the typical way I have my hat on when I'm wearing my hat is backwards, right? And so does Cove always listen? No, but I didn't ever, I never taught him to put his hat on backwards. I never make him put his hat on backwards. He sees his father and he wants to reflect his father. He's been wearing his hat backwards because I wear my hat backwards. So children don't always obey, but they will always reflect. And so when we become children of God, we begin to reflect the way of God. But we've got to become like children. We've got to get to that place of lowly recognition of our low spiritual status. There's nothing we can do. We have to be brought. And so how do we practice becoming like children? This is the last thing. This is where we'll land. Two words. Embodied trust. Embodied trust. If Jesus is referring to surrender of our status and our will and our agenda, it also implies entrusting one's life to another as a child would his or her parents. Infants, toddlers, and younger children are typically not asking parents, Hey, Mom and Dad, what's in the bank account this week? Or, Hey, Mom and Dad, are you going to the grocery store today? They don't ask questions like that. This is because they're not concerned with the ways of adulthood. This is because they trust their parents to do what they can't on their own. They trust there's going to be food. They trust that they don't have to worry about it. So the other side of surrender is trust. To surrender ourselves to something means we are trusting in something else. And a lack of surrender reveals a lack of trust. And embodied trust involves giving up with the assurance that God is always at work. God is always at work. The children trusted Jesus. They were surrendered. They came to him with joy. Now, what does this embodied trust look like? Well, I think we've got to figure out what we have to surrender. We we should be surrendering what causes us angst, what causes us distress, what causes us those sleepless nights. Surrender those and trust that God is at work. So trust may look like resting from work, clocking out when we're supposed to clock out, and knowing that when we come back in, we will be productive and finish up whatever we didn't, weren't able to do. Trust may look like taking a day to be playful with our friends, like children. I tell you, there's a couple of weeks back where I was working so much, I just got in the zone, and I couldn't imagine not working. Well, then we went up to Highlight Canyon, and we walked around up there, And it was such a good reminder that I just needed to be playful with my family. And so trust means putting stuff down and going and enjoying something for a change. Trust might mean turning off the news. If Fox News causes you stress, turn it off. If CNN causes you stress, turn it off. Trust might look like starting friendships after being wounded in the past. Trust may look like fasting from food or social media to increase our appetite for God. See, trust isn't just in the head. Trust is lived out. And when we surrender, we are saying, I trust you, God. Children had to be fully dependent on their parents. And in this way, I think this is what Jesus is saying. Become like the children. Become like the children. So as you seek to embody this text and become like children, I pray that you experience the joy that a child has, the lack of worry, the lack of anxiety, and the complete and total peace that comes from being a child. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.